Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Hi everybody, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but I feel completely defeated, exhausted, purposeless, stuck, also overwhelmed, fizzy, but unable to achieve anything, exhausted, can't sleep. It's like everything in me is working against me. And I guess it's a, is it a vicious cycle? It's certainly a certain kind of state I haven't experienced possibly ever before. And uh, it doesn't feel so hot. How are you, Em? Well, relative to that, I feel I'm absolutely fine, but I am now a proud possessor of a neck brace, which is an inflatable neck brace because I've got a disc bulge in my neck, which means that I basically experiencing numbness in my hands, etc. Anyway, so I've got a super sexy neck brace, which is literally like the least fuckable thing in the world. <laughs> and I look like a caterpillar. Some may find it very alluring. Well, I'm not sure I want them. There's a market, there's a market for everything. <laughs> Maybe I should start a brace yourself sort of OnlyFans account. Anyway, um, I don't know about you, but we are just basically trying to find some even footing in a year where we've alternated between stagnation and panic, sometimes both at the same time. And now we're expected to deal with more change to rise up to meet the reopening of the world. And we are still stuck. So this week we asked our old friend Julia Samuel to come and talk to us because she wrote the book on change, literally. She's a bereavement psychotherapist whose book, This Too Shall Pass, is the stories of change, crisis and hopeful beginnings and it came out last year. She's also launching an app to support people through grief, helping to navigate that most devastating emotion. Julia, thank goodness you are here. How are you? I am absolutely fine, but... I had a flat tyre on my bicycle this morning when I had to get back for a client at eight o'clock when my phone couldn't contact them. So I, with clip-on bicycle shoes, I was trying to running to get home, purple in the face, pushing my dashed bike up hills, pouring the sweat, and I was 10 minutes late for my client. So that sort of... <laughs> is still in my body. But I am, it's four hours later and I'm beginning, I've had a cup of tea, some water, I'm slowing down and so now I feel a bit more centred and really looking forward to our conversation. They are difficult, those sort of mad starts to the day when everything goes wrong and you wonder if you're going to end up in a spiral. But is bicycling your lockdown healthy habit? Yes, yeah, so I, I'm a very habitual person. So as much as I encourage everyone to adapt and grow through change, I have lots of quite rigid habits that I've had for decades that I use to keep me stable. And exercise is absolutely one of them. So I have always exercised. I've bicycled for about the last 11 years. So I bicycle twice a week, Monday and Friday. But I I like having that early start so I can feel I'm on top of my day. And I hate being late. So that is one of my things where I go slightly crazy and I feel like the world is going to blow me up for being bad, for just being 10 minutes late. And that's when I have to use my kind of third brain to say, it's okay, no one died, breathe, calm down. And then slowly I listen to my third eye or my third voice and then I do calm down. If I'm not five minutes early, 
I feel late. And that awful, chaotic, world-ending panic sets in. And only latterly, like the last few months, have I been able to say to myself, if you're five minutes late, it makes sort of almost no difference. It's a bit diff- different when you're heading into a session with a client, but generally in life. Yes. I'm interested by the fact that you said I'm bad and I really identified with that, that immediate when you make a mistake that somehow you're wrong, as in fundamentally wrong, broken, bad, all of that, because that's where I go immediately when when things are not sort of follow through. And it's been quite hard <laughs> to kind of get any, as I said in the intro, any kind of footing at all over the last sort of 15 months, basically. And to put some kind of psych intake on that is how we were brought up. I mean, I'm older than you two by a fair amount, but most of our generation were brought up by being told you're naughty and you're bad. So when we did an action that was wrong, we felt our whole being was bad. And how we know now with parenting and bringing up children is, you know, when you don't tidy up your bedroom, you know, that isn't how to treat your bedroom. It's a simplistic example. Not that you're messy, naughty, dirty, untidy child, but the action I don't like, can we sort a way of, look at a way of sorting it out? But you as a person are unconditionally loved and you're not untidy, messy person. It's just your behaviour. So you respond to the behaviour, not the person. Yes. So in other words, it's why we turn being late into being lacking and wrong and full of shame. All and these catastrophize. Catastrophize, these micro-triggers that take us back to this sense of rotten core. And it takes, it's a lifetime's work to, and ongoing work, isn't it? You can't just, the job is never done. No, I mean, I think, you know, I know that you've had therapy and I think the process of therapy is that it doesn't fix us for the things that went wrong because I think they're wounds and bruises and injuries that we find a way of living with. But the awareness of therapy gives us that kind of five-minute breath. You know, the world is on fire. Take a breath, stand back, have a look, check with myself. And so that you you can wind yourself down with some sort of soothing self-talk rather than wind yourself up with self-attack, what I call your shitty committee. So you have more, <laughs> you have more insight of really what's going on. It doesn't stop that trigger because that, I think, is that sort of in us and it's, you know. I think that the the, the last year has made it uniquely hard to move through the difficult emotions, um, to kind of maintain any kind of emotional fluidity because there was so little stimulus. And so it was very easy to get stuck in the swamp. I mean, I think the worst... I mean, for every, you know, everybody's experience of lockdown is very personal and there's certainly a spectrum of what's been bad. But I think psychologically, probably what's been universal with everyone is that the single thing that makes us human and make, enables us to thrive through difficulty, through crisis, through the many bad things and the, and the terrible bad things is the love and connection to others. That that is the thing, you know, we're born relational, we're born to be in relationship with each other. And that when we're stuck with ourselves and this terrible ruminating brain that can drive ourselves mad without, you know, we're touch hungry, without the hugs, without the proper visual cues, the sight, sign, touch and smell of another person, that stops the circuit breaker. So if when you and Emily met, 
you probably felt better after you'd worked together in the room where we did our recording last time, as opposed to now, you may do, but it takes much longer and you just don't have that same sense of visceral centering of, ah, I'm got, I'm being seen as I am, I'm loved as I am, I feel me and I'm okay. I think the thinning of that sense of ourselves being acceptable to ourselves by not being with other people has really undermined our resilience, our robustness and our capacity to surf all the storms that have come at us. And there's been a collective grief. There's been a universal grief. So we're living in an environment where you pick it up from each other, you pick it up in the street, you pick it up the contagion from the news. So there isn't the kind of in and out of positive and negative because everybody is suffering at some level. And also I think maybe, as you were saying, after a year of being isolated physically, I think a lot of us are now still feeling very isolated emotionally because it's so much harder. Maybe connection is like a muscle, but it's so much harder to find our way back to connecting with people. I mean, the the thing I've realised in the last three months really, I mean, I think January and February were the worst months for everybody that I knew of. But the unlock, the process of stepping out of the lockdown, as miserable as it was and as much as people wanted to get out of it, takes as much psychological energy to change as the lockdown. Do you have any advice about about that, about how one might move forward through that? Because it's... um you know, Emily and I, and, and, and many, many people we know, it's a funny, the world seems to be divided in, into half. Some are leaping out of lockdown, desperate to do everything and see everybody and book everything up. And we're just sort of really quite frightened and worried about it. So my advice is to start with, know yourself, go at your pace. Don't compare yourself with other people kind of recognise that the unlock is as painful, as complex as the lock, that it's a different version of grief. And so if you feel, oh, just the idea of making a date with someone feels quite kind of disturbing and a bit scary, do tiny steps. So, I mean, from what I've heard from your previous podcast, which I've been listening to, you've both walked and talked with friends a lot. So the thing would be to go into your comfort zone, walk and talk with a friend and then stop and have a coffee with them. So you feel what that's like and do that until out of 10, the comfort is sort of eight, nine, 10. And then once you stepped into that comfort zone, maybe meet someone for a coffee. And so go at your own pace and your own level of comfort. And as you get through each barrier that you are resisting, you do the next one. But don't, you know, change takes much longer than we want. But also the key ingredient in supporting ourselves through change is self-compassion. Like if the, we have this awful kind of bad design as human beings that when we're not doing things like we see other people doing, we turn on ourselves with that shitty committee and say, oh my God, I'm failing, I'm not doing this right. So we're making what's already difficult much worse by how we're talking to ourselves. So kind of turn to ourselves with self-compassion and go, oof, I'm finding this hard. Okay, it's hard. <sighs> Let myself feel it, be kind with myself, 
recognize that a lot of people are suffering, that it's human to suffer. I'm not in this alone. <sighs> Be gentle with myself. Okay, so what's the step that I can do? Rather than this kind of, you know, you, you talk to Emily about these wheels of sticks that she has. Yes, her cupboard full of sticks. <laughs> and as you introduced yourself, your vortex of stuff, kind of go, okay, oh, that is really tough. Take a breath. What do I need? What will support me given I feel like this? And then take that step by step. Because I think what happens as well is we all, we feel older and tireder. And so we doubt our capacity for change. So we are left thinking, is this just me now? Am I, well, feeling stuck. Mm. But, feeling, but feeling stuck sort of eternally. <laughs> <laughs> well, completely. And I think that is one of the kind of, again, the cruelties is that we take the present feeling and fix it as a fixed thing for ourselves and our future. And so one of the things that you, will help you to support yourself is to keep your timeline short. You know, ideally to keep it in the day, but if you can't keep it in the day, to keep it in this week and know that today I can manage today. I can manage what I'm doing today. I can do this little tiny micro step of change today. And then that, because we manage change and new habits, not by willpower and kind of grit, but by emotion. So when we give, set ourselves a small achievable task, that gives us a sense of well-being and then that we can embed as confidence and doing it again. But keeping your timeline short, the minute you go past a week, you're catastrophizing and then you lose all sense of agency, all sense of power, and then you're kind of shutting yourself down again. It's interesting what you were saying about comparing because obviously, you know, we've also all been glued to our phones. And the other day I went out to support a local friend um, who was opening her, her new business. And I posted a picture of myself on stories. And all I wanted to say was, I was there for 20 minutes. I'm just like you. I just literally didn't want to get off the sofa. I put my pajamas on, like practically underneath my dress because I didn't want anyone to think, hey, I'm totally back and fine. Exactly. And it's because I know that every time I look at someone totally back and fine, I think, oh God, but that's not me. It's interesting, isn't it? Sort of wanting to be aware and careful with what, I, what I'm putting out in the world because I understand that I'm not the only one feeling And also nervous. wanting to be seen as winning, but also losing. <laughs> you know it's like you know you're not not able to commit to, to to one thing or another and also this julia the sense of, of guilt around feeling this grief stricken when no one close to you has died i mean just to step back to what you and emily were saying about wanting to show your insides on your outside because you compare your insides with other people's outsides and then give yourself a hard time is the key of you to kind of being kind of loved by your audience is that you're authentic. And all of us have a kind of positive and a growth and a, a kind of good things. And all of us have an underbelly. And what you're saying, Emily, is that you want to show the world that you have both, that you could actually take your pyjamas off, put your dress on, but you could only manage it for 20 minutes and you want the world to know <laughs> that you are going to come back and, and then be back in your PJs. So, the, and I think that's the strength of what you do. And that's why it's a powerful podcast that you show this, you know, hope and the dark. And I think in transitioning to change, we need to name the dark and voice the dark 
and take a breath and have hope for a positive future and that we hold both. Yeah, I think so, we're both we're both waving and drowning. Yes, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? exactly. Like, hi, and also thinking. <laughs> I always think hope is a really frightening emotion because I always think it's sort of rolling the red carpet out for pain. You're smiling like you know me. <laughs> um, you know, and if you, if you dare to hope, that's when things can really come unbearably crashing down. When the gods are going to come down and punish you for daring to have hope. I mean, I think that's true of lots of people. We want to be able to manage our hope to match what we want the outcome to be. But of course, where certainty ends, hope begins. That you have to have possibility and hope side by side. And that that is quite a complex accommodation that we we need to kind of let go of certainty in order to have hope and to answer your question about the guilt and the grief is that I have seen levels of suffering and loss both from death and from what I call living losses this year I've seen it more than I've ever seen in my 32 year career as a therapist and you know, I, in my understanding, there isn't a hierarchy in grief. There's everybody's subjective experience of grief. So those that are experiencing living losses, it could be the structure and lack of certainty, the fear about a sort of global pandemic. It can be that they lost their job or fear that they're going to lose their job. They lost opportunities to be with family and friends. They lost, you know, there have been so many losses that have been, you know, listed many times. So I'm not going to list them now. But that experience of a living loss is the same as a grief from death. So you feel fear, you feel anger, you feel stuck, you feel frozen, you feel surreal, disbelief, self-attack, lonely, isolated, alienated, scared, catastrophizing. So, I mean, grief whether it's from a living loss or from death, is a messy, chaotic... It's a tiny word to describe a messy, chaotic business. And the thing that has amped it up to make it worse is the thing that helps us most in any kind of grief is the love and connection to others. And that is the thing that has been taken off our table, our possibilities, and that we've been left to deal with it with the members in our family, in our household... Whoever we live with, that's all we've got. And it may be that we live alone. And, you know, my message for years is that love is the strongest, best medicine and that our road to healing and recovery when we're grieving should be paved with people. And people were taken away from us and masks put on. So every kind of barrier to what we need most has been put in place. And so that has really turned up the volume of people's level of grief a very great deal. I mean, Emily, you know, it's it's a question of beyond the, the small micro changes, how to shift, I suppose, from survival towards flourishing. I mean, Emily's Emily is at the moment in a in a sort of hypervigilant mode and, and, and would like at some point to relax. And I have gone completely floppy and would like at some point to perk up. And maybe the answer to that in a manageable way you know, apart from all the stuff we do, whether it's meditation or meetings or exercise, might be people, even though we're a little bit frightened of people. It is. I think it's people and finding a way of expressing your pain. So the sort of paradox of grieving is we don't want to kind of it to be true and we do not want to feel this pain. But pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that 
by expressing our grief and our pain is how we heal. And whether we do that in a journal, with a friend, with people, um, through art, through creativity, we need to find a way of expressing our grief. And then we will incrementally adjust to this new reality. And, and also we then need to do things that are kind of restorative, that positively support us. And that's with people. So you need both. You need, in the same way as facing the dark and having hope, you need to kind of name and express what you've lost or what, as Emily's, is what you're fearing, hypervigilant. And Annabelle, your kind of sense of floppiness and lack of hope. You need to find a way of connecting the thought, the feeling, finding a way of expressing it. However, that, with you two, I'd imagine it's words. Letting it out that, and letting the feelings out that come with it. And that then frees you to have another feeling. But also then, once you've kind of spent your five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is doing that, doing positive, restorative things, things that make you feel better. Whether that's you two meeting and having a hug, having a joke, doing, <laughs> doing things that... Sorry, I'm just laughing because Annabelle hates hugs, okay. but yes. <laughs> but I love them. So, ha, Julia says I have to hug you. Yeah. <laughs> it's medicine. It's medicine. <laughs> Sorry, Julia, I didn't mean to interrupt because what you're saying is amazing. So the, so. But, and the restorative side is doing the things that kind of distract you, that fill you up. It may be watching something funny, listening to something funny. It may be making a delicious cup of coffee. It may be buying flowers, but intentionally doing things that intentionally comfort and soothe you, give you the resources to go back and do the loss work. So you move between the poles of loss and hope, loss and restoration. And doing both allows you incrementally to adjust. And as you were saying, Emily, we are adaptive beings. So if we allow that to come through us, we will adapt. And then we can thrive and we can flourish. But when we block it, we stay stagnant in that kind of muddy pool of ruminating of what's going on. And that keeps us hooked in the same place. But Emily and I were talking just before we started recording about how to tune into those feelings, how to drop down into those feelings, how to even know what you are feeling. Because if you've been, you know, running yourself a certain way for long enough, that's a challenge for people like us. So can I suggest my GriefWorks app? At this point. Anything that will help. So, <laughs> yes, your GriefWorks app. I've already signed up to the waiting list. Now, um, Julia's app, GriefWorks, is the uh, same name as her, her... Was it your first book? Um, My first book, is, uh, is launching next week. Uh, will you tell us what and also why? So, I mean, I've been working on this for just over two years. So, before COVID. The reason... It's a course. So, it's a 28-day course. And... Um, it has interactive tools with content of videos and audios and meditations and exercises and breathing visualizations and mood visualizations so that as the person goes through the course, they can prescribe for themselves what they need at the time. So you see a therapist once a week normally. So on this course, this can be the thing that supports them by using the tools that work for them at the time they need it. So if they're waking up at four in the morning with a pounding, blowing head heart, they can go to the bits of the app, whether it's a meditation, whether it's a visualisation, whether it's listening to music, and they can soothe themselves, they can journal. So it, 
it, it kind of shapes and supports you at the time you need it, when you need it, but you can make it your own. And it's a thing that can go alongside therapy. Or if you can't afford therapy, it can be your therapeutic tool. Um, and so it's a 28-day course going through what I've understood as the process of grieving. So it's as you do each day, um, it can take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, however much you want. It can then create structure because part of the difficulty with what we feel is, you know, emotions are not logical. We can't make our logical mind connect to our emotions. So this can give you a stabilising structure the phone is in your pocket. We never go anywhere without our phone. So this can be the thing that supports us when we feel crazed and mad and alone, that it becomes our tool to soothe us, to make sense for us, and gives actually a lot of content and you know evidence-based research to kind of know that you'll normalise what you're feeling and give you information. Love the idea that we can walk around with you in our pockets. <laughs> yes. Does it happen, does it happen in order, the 28 days? Do you do day, days yes. 1 to 28? But within that, you also are resources that you, there are resources that you can use when you need them. All the time. So I've recorded Driving Myself Mad, masses of meditations, visualisations, there's little videos. Yeah, so they can access me and my voice and, you know, and other content. But there's other, there's like hit classes, things that I don't do that we've used um, that people, you know, for exercise and stuff. So it's a, it's a 360 degree app. And it's called Grief Works, but it isn't just about grief as in the loss of a loved one, is it? it, can, it it's there to help people with all manner of situations. With all, so grief starts at the point of what you expected and wanted didn't happen. So at the point of diagnosis, if it's a health diagnosis, at the point of your partner told you I'm divorcing you, at the point your boss told you you've lost your job, at the point of COVID, you know, I'll never forget that day Boris Johnson told us to stay home. All of that was grief because what we expected for our present and our future at that moment was irreversibly changed and we had to grieve our new version of ourselves in this new life and landscape that we were facing. I think what's also really complicated is that around, there's this sort of it's like a sort of palimpsest of grief, isn't it? Because you've got the, the sort of big global macro and then you've got your actual life, which has still been going on with all of its muckiness you and know, <laughs> highs and lows. Exactly. And, you know, even though we've been at home and isolating and yes, there's lots of, you know, things have changed. The life we're still aging. Other people are still aging. People are getting ill like that hasn't stopped either. So it's this sort of really extreme kind of sort of messy yes thing that we're all stuck in i mean as you were speaking the thing that came to mind is that the kind of joys and celebrations and positives that that our life had before were taken from us and all the difficulties that we normally face in life and life isn't about happiness and joys you know we have to find a way of kind of surfing the good and the bad but all that was difficult was made more difficult and more intense and more complex and then there wasn't the kind of joyous, spontaneous, even chat to the, your coffee person or seeing beautiful flowers as you walk past a shop or, you know, the things that fed us and helped us to sustain were taken away. So that we were very, were left very kind of bereft and empty, I think. And friendships, which are so important to yes. you know, women of our generation, all women, all people, 
it got very hard because even though you try and stay in touch by phone, the how are you question was difficult. And so I think people started avoiding those connective phone calls because, you know, when someone said, what have you been doing to me? I felt furious with myself and them because I hadn't learned Japanese. And why were they asking such a mad question? It was a very, very extreme thing. And so I suppose we have to forgive ourselves for not just bouncing back. You completely forgive yourself for not bouncing back and kind of support yourselves in the version that you are in the time and place and position that you find yourself. Like you had to do whatever you did to keep your head above water and that to really allow that. And I think the word forgiveness is like you should, you've done something wrong, but to kind of allow yourself to be who you were. Like none of us know who we're going to be in extremists. And, you know, I think the other thing of our bad design is that when we're in extremists, our negative wired coping mechanisms nearly always come first. So whatever our way of dealing with difficulty that was a negative thing that we learned very young is what hijacks our system. And that's in us and will take over and will take over at an intensity that matches the difficulty we're facing. So if we're facing a force 10 gale, which a lot of people were, our normal coping of shutting down, pushing people away, feeling danger, being on high alert, will be at a force 10. And we can't fight that. But we can recognise it, not beat ourselves up for it, take a breath, as I said at the beginning, and go, OK, so that's what I did. I didn't really have a choice over that. That was my wired default response. So given that was me and where I am today, what do I need? What would support me? What would work for me? And make it micro small so that you could sort of open your heart a bit more to allow some good things in because fear shuts out good things. Feeling floppy shouts out good things. And it's by kind of incrementally, inch by inch, allowing yourself to just to trust a tiny bit that I can, that I'm okay. I can meet a friend for a walk and then a coffee and kind of feel sustained by that. And then maybe if we can work out what we feel and then what we need, that could take us to what we want. Because I think that what <laughs> <laughs> Julia's doing a dance right now, by the way. <laughs> I think a lot of us have realised that we don't want what came before. We don't want to go back to exactly as it was. So what does what we want look like? Exactly. Are we even allowed to want stuff when we spoke when when we're trying to be so grateful for health and a roof over our heads? Exactly. So give yourself permission to explore. I think all of us is reflecting, like, given that this has been so shit, let's try and get something good from it. Like, what can I learn from it that will be, you know, post-traumatic growth in a way, is that bad things, you never want them to happen. You can't take away from the pain of them. But in it, something in you is changed. And if you allow it, some of that change can feel like growth. Like, let the change change you and let that change what you value how you behave, how you live, and ask yourself, so given what I've been through, what do I want to take forward? What would me look like in six months' time that would be a version of me or my life or my hopes for my work, for my personal life, for my family, whatever it is, looking at all of those boxes, what do I want? 
How can I get there? What, can, what do I need? What can I use to support me? And what can I leave behind? What is the old skin of me, the snake, that the, you know, the storm blew off me and let it, let, leave it behind? In some level, it's always in your backpack. Our past kind of never leaves us exactly, but it doesn't have to come and bump in our face. It's like, whew, let it release you. And do you think it's worth getting organised around that? I'm not organised in this way, but writing some lists, doing some journaling, getting it out of you onto paper, making voice notes, even saying to a friend, can we check in for five minutes a day to talk about anything in particular? But actually creating a framework around that to try and... Because otherwise it feels like quicksand. Yeah, you lose it. You could do a mood board. Yeah. You can do notes. You can do get pieces of... Go through magazines and you know, stick them together or use your Pinterest to sort of do it. What might that look like? And make what's vis- sort of incohate, visceral in your body, make it a narrative, a story that you can understand that can influence you and shape you as you're going forward. But we are not alone, are we? I mean, you must have seen an awful lot of blood on the walls over the last 18 months. I mean, I don't think there's a single person in the universe probably right now that isn't changed by COVID. No one's untouched by it. Everybody has gone through something or multiple things and lots of them things that they would never have chosen or wanted. Seeing as you're the person who's had to hear all this sort of, you know, brutality and grief and, 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 and misery, how have you how have you kept yourself? You must have had to draw in a lot of, you know, of, of hard-earned resources to keep yourself safe and held when you're at the coalface of all this emotion. I mean, I, I am good at taking my own medicine. So I do lots of exercise. I do a meditation, five minutes, you know, little by, I don't find nirvana in an hour kind of breathing. I do five minute little mini breaks. I really want this to come out with humility is, you know, I really love my job and I've done it for a really long time. So there was a kind of sense of purpose and meaning that in doing my job really a lot it gave me strength I think I felt like 25 years in an NHS hospital supporting families where a child died and all the stuff that I've been writing and you know doing has given me the resources and I can use them and that you know feeling useful I think is a really fortunate thing I think a lot of what people had difficulty with is that they felt empty and useless so I felt I was very lucky in some way that I could feel useful supporting a hospital doing lots of different things so but you know I felt scared and I had sleepless nights and I felt sick and I had so I had a lot of the feelings other people had but I am quite good at sorting myself out and 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 was that sense of, of purpose was that partly what the app is about was it about giving people access to that wisdom and those techniques So the app started before COVID was very much, I really think if we have the tools and the information, people are hungry now. So there's a much greater awareness that we can access support, that it's not a sign of weakness. And I wanted to make the most kind of accessible source of support for people that there was that couldn't afford to see me or I wouldn't have time to see. So my book was the first version of that. Um, and the app is a more active kind of, you know, book. It requires reading and concentration. The app is like, you're really feeling terrible. Take the phone out of your bag. 
tap it in and you've got something. And so that that felt to me like a wonderful thing. And using my knowledge and information and experience to be at people's beck and call felt very useful. I think you're you're right, you know, in terms of one of the things that's been accelerated by COVID is the mental health conversation in such a big way because people have, you know, used every platform possible to say, I'm not okay. And that's, you know, if there's going to be treasure in this, then that's it, isn't it? And the idea that we can have you in our pocket is sort of, is a miracle, basically. Well, I don't know about that, but it's, you know, the WHO in April of last year said the next pandemic is a mental health pandemic. And I think we're in it. And I know from some research that was just came hot off the press that I heard last week was waiting list for counselling is within GP practices six to eight months in voluntary counselling organisations is six to eight months. So people, you know, unless they can afford it, are not able to access the support that they need. And we also know from research that the sooner you intervene with what you're feeling, the better your outcomes. So, I mean, it weirdly, the app is coming at the right time. <laughs> well, seeing as we can't all crawl through our screens or our headphones and sit on your lap, then <laughs> the app is the next one, which is annoying, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I know. I want to hug. Can we do a hologram hugging situation yes. with your app, please? Thank then you. The app is Definitely. the next best thing. And thank you so much for coming on, making us all feel unpathetic. I think it's quite important at the moment to feel unpathetic. I think it really is important to feel unpathetic. I really do. To let yourself be who you are, support yourself given who you are and let yourself know that you deserve love and connection given who you are at this really difficult time. So everybody, download the app because I know you'll, I'm sure you'll acknowledge that we all need it. Thank you so much, Julia. We'll be calling on you again very soon. And everybody else, we will see you the week after next because we're taking a break for a week. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Annabel Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. Don't give up on the person you're becoming. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.